is Control Structure, episode 87 for May 23rd, 2015. Big week to everyone listening. Before we get started, this show does have show notes. Please visit thenexus.tv slash cs87 to see them. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Bailey, and this is my other host, Stephen Orvis. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing, uh, well, better than last Saturday. That's good. So, uh, I don't think I even told you this even before the show, but on Saturday, I accidentally my little toe on a door jam. That always hurts. Yes, uh, it hurts so bad that uh, there was, like, blood everywhere, and uh, I could see, like, part of the toenail just hanging there. That sounds really painful. Yeah, so uh, I stopped freaking out and, you know, like, you know, cleaned it up and put a Band-Aid on it and, uh, you know, kept putting Band-Aids on it for a couple days, and uh, Tuesday it finally just stopped hurting altogether, and I took a walk in the park, and my socks were not bloody. That's uh, good that you're healed of that, mostly. And So, it, there's still, like, a huge scab on my toe, but, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt when, at all when I walk. I wasn't, like, disabled, but I was limping for a while. Yeah, it's just a tiny little bitty toe can have a, quite a big effect. Yes, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure who thought that it wouldn't affect you like that, so... So, uh, have you ever forgotten someone's birthday before? Yes. So, uh, it turns out we forgot someone's birthday this year, uh, back... Was, it, it wasn't Chris, because we remembered Chris's birthday. At least I did. Well, I mean, he announced today that he had a birthday, so I went ahead and told, told him happy birthday. So, I didn't know about it, so I did, couldn't forget about it. So, uh, someone else's birthday was, uh, Microsoft Bob who on uh, the 10th of March this year turned 20 years old. 20. So Microsoft Bob, if you don't know, actually is uh, a thing that they put on top of the Windows uh, 3X operating system to make it more user-friendly since they figured that maybe it actually wasn't that great of UI for new people to computers to learn. So they thought having this cartoon-like world that you can live in and click on like a calendar or your count book and various things like that might be useful to people. Stand by for garbage collection. Is he gonna back up? He hasn't backed up for a long time. I think yesterday it was stuck on. Backed up? Yeah, he came this way instead of going away. I see. So he probably backed up because of you. Uh-oh. You're so special. Yes. So, anyways, Microsoft Bob. Uh, he's uh, quite famous for not being good at all. It's uh, heard, as I recall, that uh, after the third attempt, failed login attempt with your password, he would hopefully offer you the password just to help you out. And uh, But it's interesting, though, how he's affected it. Because the dog actually was the dog in Windows XP, when you did a search, there'd be this dog that you could pick and he'd like scratch on the ground and and uh, sniff and stuff while he the computer was searching for the files. So interestingly that... Uh, I remember that dog. Yes, it was kind of a fun dog to watch. It gave you something to do. So it was interesting that that dog came through. 
And uh, actually, uh, I was trying to find the, the uh, there you go, is talking in the article about that Bob was kind of a social interface, and it was tying that up with how in Windows 10, now they actually are trying to do this uh, personalized assistant, whom I've already forgotten the name of. Cortana. Uh, Cortana, there we go, Cortana, with, which is like this circle thing that spins and stuff. And so the concepts Microsoft was trying to do then, they're trying to do again, but in a different way, it seems. Because we'll see. Raspberry. 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 So, uh, Ubuntu or Conical. Canonical. Canonical. There, you said it, and and I thought I had it, but I who, didn't have it. Who is the company behind Ubuntu? There you go. Anyways, they have a new thing called the Orange Matchbox, which is more than just a case for your Raspberry Pi. Along with it, they have a operating system. That's a derivative of Ubuntu Core and uh, is made to run on the ARM architecture, just special for the Raspberry Pi. So it's just called Snappy Ubuntu, right? So, uh, yes. And so the interesting thing about it, uh, in the video there, it was showing a pic- picture of their giant hover mini core server box. 10 CPU. Yes. I don't know, like 80 threaded... <laughs> yeah, the, the really impressive big suitcase thing. The like, orange box. The not, orange not, box. Not to be confused with the one with Half-Life. So it, it was, it's kind of interesting, uh, interesting case. And uh, you see Ubuntu trying to come into the IoT thing now that uh, everyone else, including Windows 10 and uh, a bunch of other people now, so they're trying to jump on the banner wagon so they don't get lost. So... Uh, what's this about the Ubi Dots? Ooh, the Ubi Dots. So up on uh, the RaspberryPi.org, they have a getting started with IoT guide. And on there they talk about uh, two things, the Ubi Dots and the Thingbox. And the Thingbox is software that runs on your Pi that uh, when you first re- turn it on, it hosts a web- website on your Pi and you can go to it and it has options to like, configure your Pi like the Wi-Fi or whatever, and then also kind of the meat of what it is, is through the web interface, you can draw like a, uh, the best way I can describe it is like a Windows workflow style diagram thing of stuff you want your Pi to do, and you can interact with those pins, and within like the different elements, you can write code and have it actually do stuff. And so you can couple that with the UbiDots, which is a site that collects data for IoT stuff and I, IoT yeah I was making sure I had the acronym right there <laughs> for I, IoT stuff and uh, also helps to analyze it or even send it back to some caller through their API anyways so the thing box you set it up and get like the key from the OB dots and then you send your data up to it and then you see it up there on the OB dots so I think this has a lot of usefulness to it because and just as a side note, IoT means Internet of Things. It's the hot new crap going around. 
So yes, we have a, a lot of IoT stuff this specific podcast too. Uh, At least in this segment. In this segment, which might be because it's in the Raspberry Pi segment. <laughs> Anyways, so the Obidots, it has the data. It can take the data from the Pi. So like they have an example tutorial there where they're pushing up data from a sensor up to the Pi, or not, from the Pi to the uh, Obidots, and you can have on there like a graph or something of the data, and it would show up. Another thing that they do is they wire show you how to wire up in the tutorial how you can actually go the other direction and have, say, an LED on the Raspberry Pi, and from the Obidots website, you can send the command, and the Pi has been pulling the website. They set it up in the tutorial for like every second. They just pull it to look for a change, and then it would pull the change down from the OB dots and go ahead and turn the light on or off. This seems pretty useful. It does seem very useful. I've kind of been doing a very similar thing, but all by myself with the Smoky Furnace app, where I essentially have a, I do a post to the web server with my data, and the web server analyzes it and displays it to the user in a graph and things like that. Which is in contrast with this, it does the same thing as doing a post to the web server, and it can even analyze some basic stuff, and it exposes it then to the outside world with an API as well. And so I, I think this might be useful for even what I'm doing, because I could maybe make the Pi software easier to handle, because that's a big deal with mine. It is not very customizable, it's just kind of there, and you have to write code for it. Instead, you can have maybe something a little more dynamic and send it up to there, and at least have the data stored away someplace. And then you can worry about maybe making a UI that plugs into that API and pulls the data down and analyzes it or just, just displays it. Maybe I can make an Android app instead or, or something else. It seems very useful just to manage the data that's coming in. So in other news, the Raspberry Pi B Plus went down $10 from 35 to 25 Nice. And interestingly enough, as I was reading the article... The thought clicked in my mind, I wonder if they're trying to compete with uh, Chip, which was the $9 mini computer thing we featured last podcast. And uh, turns out towards the bottom of the article, they said one of the popular speculations for the reason of the price reduction is a device called Chip, a very popular project by the Next Thing Co. with a starting price of just $9. So evidently, I wasn't the only person that thought that. And uh, the IO thing is heating up lately, so perhaps uh, they figure they better make it attractive. Even in the past, we were talking about this before the show, in the past we've seen them drop the price down of older Pi models, and the B Plus no longer is the latest and greatest, so perhaps it was just a planned thing. Yeah, so, well, now I don't actually have a B Plus, I have a B, so... I'm still probably going to get one of the Pi 2s one of these days, just oh, because it's... definitely. Yeah, it, yeah, probably maybe try the Windows 10, even though it sounds really annoying that I have to have a VM of Windows 10 to install Windows 10 on the Pi. That, that to me, is really annoying. But try that and uh, maybe give the snappy Ubuntu thing out a try, too. That might be kind of neat to try. Okay, so let's move on to uh, something a little bit higher power, I guess, and talk about AMD. Yeah, they're not quite the most powerful kid on the block, but, you know, they're trying something out. Uh, that something being high bandwidth memory, and I believe we may have mentioned it on the uh, previous episode, uh, but uh, a couple days ago, uh, you know, AMD actually went into 
quite a bit more depth on like you know how it's going to work and what specific numbers and uh, specs are going to be on it. So you know they're basically touting that uh, you know instead of having like actual physical memory chips outside of say a GPU, that you know they will actually be vertically stacked and shoved right next to the GPU. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, the manufacturing process for both the uh, RAM and the C and the uh, GPU are quite a bit different. So um, unfortunately, they can't be like integrated onto one die. Uh, like they'll have to be like manufactured, transported, and then assembled elsewhere. Um, but uh, the anyway, the space saving is uh, quite enormous. So. Uh, like imagine, you know, having like two GPUs on one video card and not have it be 12 inches long. Uh, let's see, they also touted the, uh, like the massive in, uh, increase in, uh, how should I say efficiency, uh, for power at least. Apparently, uh, like for the same amount of RAM, it'll only be about a third as much of power. So that ties in nicely with the idea you just presented of putting multiple on one card. If we just saved on power, we can add more to our system and not impact the amount of power we're using. So uh, the only drawback to this is that, at least for the first generation of GPUs that will be using this, it'll only have a maximum of 4 gigabytes of RAM. And, uh, you know, you might be, you know, scratching your head, hey, you know, isn't like most high-end cards now for gigabytes? Well, yeah, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, the next generation, you know, the future. Um, and, but it turns out that uh, AMD doesn't really have that great of uh, uh, memory usage optimization for the video cards. So there's room for improvement there. Um so you're saying, like, software-wise, they don't do good as far as using those memory? Yeah, it's like, the memory management isn't as great. So, you know, hopefully, you know, after this gets out for a couple months, they'll release a driver that, uh, you know, allows you to shove, you know, better textures on there, uh, for instance. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, only about 4 gigabytes, uh, but it'll have a combined 4,096-bit bus. Uh, because they'll have, uh, like four stacks of this RAM surrounding the GPU and like each has a 1k, uh, bit bus bandwidth or rather, uh, width, the actual bandwidth, uh, will be somewhere around 500 gigabytes per second. And, uh, whereas like even my monster card that I have, although it's kind of outdated, a GTX 680, has probably about 130 gigabytes per second. So, you know, this will be, you know, even a massive increase on current gen cards, which I think the Titan X they mentioned has like about 320 gigabytes per second. So that is a really big increase there of uh, speed for you. Indeed. Um, So, yeah, you know, again, using third of the power. And, uh, you know, also, you know, they, you know, go into like specific details about you know how it's going to be packaged uh, apparently there's going to be a silicon interposer layer that's like going to connect all of these 
uh, because, you know, it's all on one chip, but, you know, it's like physically separate modules. Yes. So, like, you know, there's going to be uh, an interposer actually built on a much uh, w- uh, bigger silicon process, like a 90 nanometer process. Uh, whereas, like, you know, the actual GPU itself will probably be made on like a 20 nanometer process. Um so, you know, you put your GPU down on there, you put your RAM on there, then you package it up, solder it to a video card, and boom, you have a, well, mostly, uh, a you know, marketable product there. So do you see this as mostly being more of a desktop uh, graphics cards, or do you think this has applications for laptops and netbooks this, and this, mobile devices? This has applications everywhere. Uh, you know, it'll just, like, make everything more efficient and uh, definitely, uh, you know, definitely have more computational power uh, because, you know, you know, generally when you're, you know, writing a program, you're accessing variables from memory. So, you know, the faster that happens, you know, the faster everything happens, essentially. Um, so, you know, this will, you know, have, you know, applications, especially for power constrained uh, devices and, you know, essentially, you know, where heat is a concern, like in laptops. So, and like cell phones, they already have these. There's called uh, system on a chip, uh, like even on uh, your our Raspberry Pi, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, you have your CPU, GPU thing, and then you have your RAM stuck right on top of that chip. So this is, you know, essentially scaling that idea up, you know, for high performance uh, type systems. And, you know, because we're talking about AMD, we're also talking about CPUs. So, you know, they could easily apply this to, you know, like whatever next generation uh, microarchitecture they're cooking up. I see that does make sense because that's going to be huge on a CPU. If you can suddenly increase your bandwidth uh, to your memory, that's going to make your computer quite a bit faster. Downside is, though, uh, people might hate the fact that they can't upgrade the RAM quite as easily anymore. True, but um, like if you have say, 4 gigabytes of RAM already on your CPU, like, even now, you know, even if you have, like, 32 gigabytes, like, more on RAM modules, that's still a significant amount of memory right there on your CPU. So, yes. Uh, anyways, uh, speaking about the future, how about some Windows 10 stuff? Yeah. So, hey, you use Linux, Yes, I do. Uh, how awesome is apt-get? It's really nice when you're reading about some program on the internet or something. They just say, oh, just install it. So you fire up the terminal and you say, sudo apt-get, install, Whatever. Name. Yes. <laughs> and press enter. And it says, do you want to install it? And these dependencies that you need. And you say, yes, please. And it does it for you. Yes. And it all does it generally flawlessly yes most of the time it is flaw flawless and how it does it it is very smart about it so apparently windows 10 will have that too um so yeah it's essentially built on powershell um and it apparently uh will actually work with uh like already out there software installation packages you know like msi files like you see those everywhere Yes. So it was just popped into my mind just as we're talking about it. In uh, If you're developing for Microsoft stuff in Visual Studio, we do already have the concept of the package managing. With uh, NuGet, you have like your third-party dependencies. You can just 
say there's a command line for it. Actually, you can use or you can use the UI and and install stuff and just get it. So they're extending that concept. Microsoft is kind of on board already with it. So, yeah, this will be uh, quite easy to, you know, when you install a fresh copy of Windows, you can just, you know, run this with a script and boom, you got your Chrome, you got your Firefox, you got your, you know, Audacity even, you got, you know, whatever you need, like right there. Yeah. It's it's a great concept. I know I've, I've read that before about Linux, so that's one of the things for building a system. Like you said, you can script it, you can just run it and it just does it for you and it's a very powerful tool. It helps uh, avoid the danger of viruses too. I know one time, I think it was Audacity or some program like that, I was installing for my brother and I Googled it and I was just being real quick about it. I think it was VLC actually. I was being very quick and I clicked on the first top link and I just clicked install. Halfway through I realized this is not a VLC. It's a virus. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it could avoid things like that because if you're getting it from the official package manager from an official trusted source it's probably not going to be a virus yep so and uh speaking about package management uh have you ever used sigwin i have uh, in a very limited way uh just uh but not very much on windows i wasn't too too impressed with it the one time i used it yeah it's it's essentially linux but in a program in windows um so like, I really don't have too much familiarity with this, uh, although I do use it regularly on my work laptop if I want to download any Nexus.tv podcasts, uh, because apparently uh, my laptop does not like me running PowerShell and any number of random programs. Like, it's not like any kind of policy thing. It's just that, like, some library inside is broken. And uh, between that and the fact that it's a 32-bit system running on 4 gigs of RAM, I'm really tempted to just wipe it all, install 64-bit on there just for another 500 megabytes of RAM. Sometimes just a bit of RAM can make a very big difference in in computers. I remember once we had a, a Windows 98 machine, and it only had 64 megabytes. And when you played DVDs, it kind of would have just a bit of a stutter to them. Well, when we upgraded that to have 128 megabytes, it played DVDs smooth as silk. So, uh, anyway, let's uh, talk about Backblaze for a while. You remember them. Yes. They're, they are uh, the International Backup Awareness Day company. Well, a Backup Awareness Day company. Uh, so, they are a cloud backup service provider. So, they have like thousands of hard drives running like all the time and uh every so often they'll release a report on their hard drive failures and like actually split it split it out by uh model and brand and everything so they just did that this week and uh you know you can pretty much you know examine it all here they actually break it out uh, also by quarter uh so if you have a seagate barracuda uh, three terabyte drive. That's has a pretty bad failure rate and increasing over the past like year or so. So now I was trying to find that one. I I recognize it and I thought is is this the one the uh... no that's the one and a half terabyte. Okay. If you scroll down further, like a lot, uh, you'll see it broken out by uh like actual down quarter. here. Yeah, there you okay. go. 
See, I was looking at the other chart, and it was saying that the one surrogate Seagate Barracuda drive had gone for like five years on average, which was higher than all the other ones. So yeah, I was the looking at the wrong one then. Yeah, the Seagate Barracuda 1.5 terabyte is like a constant, like 20-25% failure rate. So, you know, if you have one of those, I'm surprised if you're still running it. So, uh, let's see, they also... Uh, are running uh, Seagate Barracuda XT 4 terabyte, which, uh, let's see, I don't think I... Oh, yeah, the uh, the next one there, they have mentioned the Seagate Desktop 4 terabyte. Let's see, combined, I think I might actually have four of those, uh, one on my server and three in external drives. So, um, you know, those those I use for, you know, one in my server, then external to back it up, and then I swap it between several other locations. So, yeah. Uh, let's see. Like, there's no, no other, like, surprising thing here. You know, as always, the uh, Hitachi drives do fantastic. So, and, like, they're also experimenting with the, you know, the higher capacity drives you know the five and six terabytes so which apparently they're just experimenting with so they don't actually have much data on those but yes yeah, definitely something to uh you know keep an eye on so let's talk about rust for a while um this is you know one of our, i i am informed that one of our listeners actually named their cat after this programming language uh, but Rust has finally turned uh, version 1.0. Uh, so, you know, they actually think it's, uh, you know, stable enough to actually get out there, uh, you know, for everyone to use. Um, so what this is is a systems programming language, you know, something like C, C++, stuff like that. Um, so the idea about this is that it's, uh, like, one of its interesting features is that it separates out you know, code that is guaranteed to be safe to run and code that is not so much, you know, code that might cause like some, mem- like, a, like a seg fault or something, something really tricky and low level like that. Um, so like you can have a code base that 30% of it is unsafe code, which might sound scary, but like it guarantees that like the other 70% will not have a specific set of problems with it so are you talking about uh just like this code handles exceptions well or are you saying like unsafe meaning like i was thinking in i think i've seen in java before when i was doing something you can call like an unmanaged library and that's like considered unsafe because you're just something like giving it to somebody else to do something like that yes um so like it won't have like a certain class of like memory issues or something so, you know, it, it seems to be kind of interesting like that. So uh, let's talk about something that's actually built with Rust, which sounds kind of nasty. Uh, but Servo. Uh, Servo is coming along. Uh, they actually have a, uh, a spreadsheet of, like, all their CSS, uh, CSS properties that they support. And, you know, it's you know, continually undergoing, you know, heavy development and uh, like they actually want to use this in Firefox OS, uh, like as the default renderer there. There we go. So that's that's the question I was going to ask: is if the Rust was more of a low-level thing, why is Mozilla using it? That makes sense. So they're actually it's not really for their browser at all. It's just all for their OS. Yeah. Um, so 
uh, Servo is a very multi-threaded uh, browser, uh, web browser renderer. And uh, they're actually, you know, talking here about actually making the browser Chrome, uh, you know, actually built with this, which, you know, seems fairly uh, reasonable to do, you know, because you're, you know, it's, you know, simply, you know, uh, you know, reusing what you have. So and, you know, there therefore that it sort of implies that it's cross platform. So let's, uh, you know actually move on a little bit here, you know, speaking about errors and whatnot and problems. Have you ever had trouble writing error mes messages? Uh, Postgres has a pretty good page explaining uh, error message writing methodologies. It's a pretty good read. Uh, someone should make this into a cheat sheet. So I found uh, just off the top one message or the one sentence that stood out was it says the primary message should be short factual and avoid reference to implementation details such as specific function names which uh, developers tend to like doing sometimes they very wordy and they like telling how it works because it makes sense to them but to some users someplace they don't want to know they want to know how to fix it yeah so uh, like here it says you know open failed uh, whereas a better uh, wording would be could not open file so and uh, I really like the uh, mess the sort of section down at the bottom the tricky words to avoid uh, unable you know unable is clearly passive voice it is better to use cannot or could not as appropriate bad error message like bad result are really hard to interpret it's better to write why the result is bad like invalid format oh yeah and this is probably something that Microsoft should have kept in mind <laughs> illegal. Illegal stands for violation of the law. The rest is invalid. Better yet, say why it's invalid. You know, the illegal, as soon as I saw that that word, I just saw in Windows 98 that box popping up and say illegal something or another, and I, I remember seeing that quite a bit. Yeah, um, you know, granted it is against the laws of computing, but... Users don't know that. Like, Grandma has no idea what those are. <laughs> My computer is breaking the law again last night. <laughs> I'm going to get a ticket one of these times. Uh, let's see. Then it says, you know, try to avoid unknown. Consider error. Unknown response. If you don't know what the response is, how do you know it's erroneous? Unrecognized is a better choice. Uh, find versus exists. If the program uses a non-trivial algorithm to locate something and that algorithm fails, it is fair to say you could not find something. If, on the other hand, the expected location of a resource is known, but the program cannot access it, uh, then it is safe to say that the resource does not exist. Uh, and then it distinguishes may, can, and might, and also avoid contractions. So I was just jumping back to the finds versus versus exists. It seems like the difference was exists is very specific and you're sure was finds a little bit more vague, leaving open the possibility that maybe it just it's there but it just didn't know where to look. Yeah, um, like if you give like a directory and file path, you know, you could say that it doesn't exist. You know, like hey, you gave me a path to somewhere specific, it's not there. It doesn't exist. So, yeah, very useful. 
So, uh, you know, we haven't talked about a uh, security vulnerability for a while, and it's about time that uh, something happened. What happened was a log jam. So if you're, if you were, uh, you know, did you actually take a, yeah, you actually took a course on cryptography, right? I did take a ter- course in cryptology. So uh, did you actually like get into the specific uh, like ciphers and like legality of uh, encryption? The legality, uh, pretty much what we learned about was the guy that couldn't export his thing. So he printed a book and mailed it and then it was okay. Uh, so, so uh, like before that actually got established that uh, there are things called export ciphers. These were like deliberately uh, like weakened with like shorter keys. I think it was like down to like 40 bit or maybe 56 bit or something. And so th- those were ones that were allowed because they're weaker because the government figured they could crack them. Well, they were considered munitions at that point. So uh, those are the export-grade uh, cryptography. So apparently a attack has been figured out using these in that, you know, servers, you know, lying around the Internet, like someone could man in the middle the uh, handshake and the man in the middle could tell the server to you know, use the export cipher. Uh, That would be passed back to the man in the middle. The man in the middle would relay that back to the client as like just the regular uh, cipher suite. But uh, it would just be using a shorter key. But the client would just think that, you know, the server was deliberately using that and would not complain about it. So, and uh, this uh, blog post on Cloudflare you know, pretty much illustrates all, you know, the important steps behind this. But what I really like is this pretty infographic and explanations about how specific key exchanges and cipher suites work. I really wish that there were more of these because I want to know what's the use of generating an RSA key for my server when it's just using AES for encryption in the end when it's talking to the browser. And I even said so, and the author expressed interest in starting a podcast much like the one you're listening to now. Uh, so watch his blog on encryption and security stuff. So, like, uh, would are you sort of interested in this stuff here? I, I, I am interested in the, the encryption stuff. The class was lots of fun doing when I did it. I remember we did the... I remember the... The math for the Dippy Hillman, we did something with that, and then we did like one round of the DES by hand, which was really painful. It's it was fun to do though. It's it's good to know how this stuff works under the hood, because then you can understand bigger problems of how people can leverage it to their advantage. So uh, Jason Scott, he's uh, an archivist now at uh, you know, I believe it's archive.org. He wants all of your AOL CDs, like if you have any of those lying around. So he figures that uh, these, you know, these are actually pieces of history. Uh, you know, since at you know some point, like half of all CDs in the world were AOL CDs that they would just you know send out all the time. So uh, you know, but apparently there's not a very good archive of these. So, you know, of course, they sent out, you know, like, I'm not sure, hundreds of, you know, individual versions of these. Uh, and, you know, with all the uh, bundled crapware, if you can call it that, 
you know, it's, it, these are essentially time capsules of, you know, what was going on. So, you know, he wants, you know, he asks you to, uh, you know, create ISOs of these and actually scan the actual physical packaging. And, you know, if, if you want to, you can go ahead and send it to him at the Internet Archive. So it's, it's interesting. I was reading the article just about how many disks AOL sent out and things like that. And it was saying, uh, he says, since the average subscriber, oh no, he says AOL's goal was to spend 10% of lifetime revenue to get a new subscriber. He says that since the average subscriber life was around 25 months and revenue was 350 off each of these users, so he's guessed they probably spent 35 per user on things such as these discs. So I guess $35 could buy a lot of shipping and mailing and oh, discs. Yeah. So, yeah, that's like millions and millions, maybe, you know, a few billion of these. He's saying that the discs uh, helped the AOL grow quite a significant amount. Yeah, at some point they had like, what, 22 million subscribers? So, you know, that that's definitely significant. So now I was, I was looking in, in the... Uh, the the original link, the Jason Scott's page, he said that half of all manufacturers' C- CDs in the world had an AOL logo on them. I was trying to find the place in the article he linked to where he was actually asserting that. Maybe that's more of an underground thing, or maybe he got it from some other place. It must be. But it's an interesting concept if that's true, because, like... I assume he's like including every single CD that was ever made, and that sounds maybe, way too impressive. Maybe like for a month or two. So, uh, anyways, uh, let's talk about solid state drives, and let's not stop talking about CDs. So, solid state drives—they're like the uh, you know like the preferred storage medium, I guess now. Um, so, and Antec uh, took a tour of OCZ's factory. And you know it's complicated that you know they're in they're they're not an independent company they're owned by Toshiba and when they got bought they sold this factory to like some other company that actually makes uh, SSDs for other companies now but never mind that because this factory is kind of cool and like how it's like all manufactured and whatnot you know it starts out with the uh, like the cutting of the PCB you know the circuit board in there. And, you know, like the placement of sur- surface components like resistors. Um, and then, you know, you put on the controller and the other chips. And it also goes into like burn-in type testing. Uh, apparently, uh, each uh, drive is, uh, uh, is like written over eight times and, you know, verified. So, you know, it, they're fairly confident that it works. So that that's that sounds like kind of impressive Q, QA there. You write over it and you test it. You're making sure everything each gate is flipping on and off for you and and such. So and uh, let's see that the eight times is like every disc that leaves the factory. But you know every once in a while they'll take some out and actually you know like test them even more to you know verify that they're meeting their like mean time between failure uh, ratings. And like, uh, you know, all the while they're also, you know, checking, you know, are these, you know, the speed that we market them as, you know, are, you know, so like they're continually doing quality testing. And apparently uh, for OCZ, this is a significant improvement 
uh, from what they were doing before. So, and they also do a drop test since they, you know, package these, you know, in boxes of 10 and, you know, they, you know, want to drop these for durability. You know, they're SSDs, you know, they're not hard drives. They don't have any moving parts, you know, for them to, you know, slide around. So, you know, they also, you know, drop them just, you know, hey, you know, just to, you know, and then apparently, assumingly, they would also test after that. <laughs> yes, they can be dr- dropped just fine. Just don't run them after. <laughs> you know, everything can be airdroppable at least once. That's correct. go into uh, some appreciate here so uh you you actually didn't notice it aside from it being on the wall now but uh after i stubbed my toe i spent an hour setting up my new router and then i spent another two hours figuring out why linux wouldn't talk to it but that's a slightly different issue uh so i threw out my old router uh because you know every so often you'll see or at least I will see a you know report about vulnerability on like the actual like home routers, uh, you know like they can be actually recruited as part of a botnet. So you know considering that the uh, router I was using hadn't had new firmware in something like seven years, uh, like when I actually bought it, uh, I'm like yeah I can't actually you know consciously continue to use this. Uh, so I decided, you know, to, you know, look around and what I found was a Western Digital MyNet N750. Um, it's pretty reasonably priced and that's probably because it's been discontinued. So they want to, you know, like sell, uh, like sell everything as fast as they possibly can. Uh, but, uh, you know, I got this, you know, for like maybe 35 or 40 dollars. It's a dual-band router, uh, also gigabit. So, you know, it does the 2.4 gigahertz, it does the 5 gigahertz wireless. Uh, so, like, you know, it's I don't use it right now, but, you know, when I want to, I can just flip it on, and yay, wireless! Um, it also has two USB ports on it, you know, for storage or hooking up a printer or something. That's really handy right there. So, uh... You know, I pretty much, you know, switched it out, and uh, then I, you know, pretty much once I got it uh, plugged in, I put OpenWRT on it, and man, this stuff is great. So, I've been, uh, I'm more familiar with the, with uh, DD-WRT, and so I was curious kind of what the difference was between DD-WRT and OpenWRT and why you chose that. Um, mostly because I, you know, was searching on OpenWRT. That seems to be the bigger project. Uh, and it specifically had this router uh, on its compatibility list. So, and, uh, you know, I pretty much, you know, went with that. 
So look, let's uh, look up DDWRT. Um, apparently, Wikipedia says the last stable release was in 2008. Ah, so they actually stopped development on it. Interesting. Yeah. So did the uh, is the open WRT is that continued in development? Oh yeah. Uh, the build I have I flashed it with is like from November or something. Okay, so that's pretty recent. Yes. So, uh, let's see, just checking out their uh, site here. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, like all their posts are like from February last year or something, or April last year. So yeah, it doesn't really look like it's uh, hotly developed. So they, it's. I was reading a page here, some about a guy that was moving over. He was. He seems to be saying a lot of stuff that makes it sound like it's more of a. In addition, probably to what we were just talking about, the age of it, he's saying that the DD-WRT comes with as many features as possible installed by default. It's a complete cathedral and hopes to be everything you would ever want or need. And he says, OpenWRT is more like a, I'm not sure, is it Bazaar? Is that how it's pronounced? Bazaar? Bazaar. Bazaar, okay. By default, it comes with common required modules, and you can add any extras you would want through an easy package manager. By choosing the bits that suit your usage case, you can build your own cathedral. So I guess it sounds like it's more of a bare bones and add what you need versus here's everything. Have fun configuring it. Yeah. Um, the You can actually SSH into uh, OpenWRT. Uh, but like, I didn't really find it that fun cause I had to use Vi. Like, why do you use Vi? Like nano is like so much better. Um, I don't know. I like, uh, VI quite a bit. That's like my favorite. So, um, <laughs> like apparently you can like configure everything from the web interface anyway. Um, so, and, uh, you know, it does support, uh, let's see, was it dynamic DNS services? So, you know, that's what I use for the andrewbailey.com. Oh, right, you'd, you'd be needing that. Yes. Uh, so uh, then after all that, you know, I set up and it's like, oh, yeah, I can, you know, define my IP range. So I decided to use the 10, da- 10 slash 8 block. So if you look at your IP address, you'll see like a 10 dot whatever address. So we are corporate now. Ha <laughs> ha. Let's check on that one. I have a 10.142.241.248. Very nice. With a subnet mask of 255.0.0.0. Looks very official. Default gateway 10.0.0.1. It does look nice. So, as I said, I spent an hour, about an hour setting it up and two hours figuring out why Linux wouldn't talk to it. My Windows machine talked to it just fine. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? I thought this was a router. Like, it's like the WAN connection should be terminating there and not at my desktop. Turns out that was not the problem. Turns out that Linux does not like it when your router ends in a dot zero. C. So, you know, I'm telling my, uh, you like, remember that uh, church laptop I had? Yes. Yeah, I was using that to actually configure it while, like, using the other router. Okay. So, like, I, you know, hopefully I would just, like, swap it out, uh-huh. like, really fast. But, you know, I'm like, okay, let's, after, like, a long time, I'm like, okay, let's, like, try to ping the router, like, that the laptop's connected to. It's like, yeah, 10.0.0.0. And then it asks, 
Do you mean the broadcast address? See, I, I think that's why it wasn't working, because that is the broadcast address to go to the O. Like, it's so, not supposed to be set so, to go. So I'm like, you're kidding me. That's my problem. I've spent like two hours trying to figure this out. And sure enough, that was it. So apparently Windows, you know, the Windows networking stack does not behave exactly the same as Linux. So, you know, I flipped it over to 10.0.0.1 and everything's fine. So, you know, I want to choose, you know, with uh, such a wide block of like a slash 8 block, you can, you know, have fun with your IP addresses. You know, 192.168, you know, that's quaint. And it takes a long time to type. So I don't want to do that anymore. So, you know, uh, let's see, I believe my server is 10.1.1.1. And my desktop I have set to 10.1.1.10. So, you know, just very simple numbers like that. It's nice when things are easier to remember versus a complex number. And why is it 168 and not 160? That seems like a more (laughs) sensible number. It's... Closer to a power of two. It would be interesting to see who chose those numbers <laughs> way back when. I don't know, probably Vint Surf or something. But, uh, yeah. Uh, check out OpenWRT, and if you're in the market for a router, uh, try an N760. So, it's working quite well for me, and uh, I do have it hanging on the wall. So, like, I had it on top of my uh, server case and you know that worked uh for like for my other one but uh you know i noticed that you know hooking you know wall mounting it like made all of my cables just almost disappear it does make your cables look very nice because they're uh hanging right there. yes they're hanging instead of being on the floor as much i i i did notice when i came in that there wasn't a cable on the floor that much i i had had sort of noticed, so uh, I did notice some of it, just not the router. So. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'll be, uh, you know, recycling that router because I don't want to, like, donate it through a thrift store and, you know, be responsible for potentially enabling a botnet. So, um, yeah, I haven't exactly tested out the wireless uh, too much on it, but, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be okay. You know, especially with the 5 gigahertz. It's, it so- sounds like a pretty decent router, and uh, it's not like some off-brand name one. Yeah, it's it's Western Digital. Yep. But they have a since decided, eh, we'd rather not do networking or TV stuff, just stick to, you know, storage and hard drives and stuff. Uh, Buckface uh, responds to uh, our algorithmic cruelty, and he says, I'm sure you know how Facebook groups notifications, you know, how Facebook groups the notifications together when people wish you a happy birthday on your wall. I noticed that it does not do that for, say, graduations. Got me thinking that Facebook could detect similar posts on your wall and group them together. I'm sure that there are some important edge cases that I have not considered. The Internet of Things. That obsolescence is why I have come to the conclusion that the best setup for a living room entertainment system is a Windows box plugged into a dumb television. Windows is the only platform that I guarantee will be supported on all services that you could ever want, both now and in the future. And I got to thinking about that. This is me, Andrew, thinking about this. 
that, you know, maybe you could, you know, maybe not Windows, maybe you could put Linux on there. But then I realized that Netflix and everything like that probably doesn't work on Linux as well. Unless you can, they have like a web, I, I haven't used Netflix, but do they have a web uh, way to watch or is it a program you have to download? Uh, there is a web way to watch, but I don't think that uh, Linux supports it. Like any of the Linux browsers support it. Let's let's see. Watch Netflix in Ubuntu today. Can you watch Netflix? So, but you know, again, you know, Windows is like the primary consumer operating system. So yes, I'd be inclined to agree that you know Windows would like guarantee run everything. Turns out though, as of October two thousand fourteen, you can watch Netflix on Ubuntu though. So, and uh, Ian Buck also throws in zero punctuation is incomprehensible at 2x speed. So, as we uh, listened to in the fringe last time. So, if you would like to send us feedback, please do so on the nexus.tv. Specifically, if you do it from the show notes page, uh, like it'll go directly to us. And uh, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up all your stuff. So, and hi mom, how you doing? My toe is doing fine, thanks. So, uh, yeah, over the past couple days, well, let's start from towards the beginning here. Uh, I have been playing The Witcher 3. Uh, that was released, uh, Monday at 7 p.m., which is kind of odd, but I guess that's like, uh, London time, so it's kind of like universal time or something. So, like, midnight there is 7 o'clock here on the East Coast. Um, So I started playing it, and I'm like, this looks great. And, uh, you know, even though it's on medium settings, it is easily, like, one of the best-looking games I've ever played. And, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, sitting there, you know, through dialogue because it's an RPG. Then then I'm like, wait, is this 7.1 surround sound? And I put my ear up to one of the speakers that is only used for 7.1. And sure enough, there was something coming out of it. And I'm like, yes, that is great. Nice. Tuesday night, I come home, start playing it, and the dialogue cuts out on me. Like, like there's sound and stuff. There is, you know, music, but no dialogue from any of the characters. So I'm like, okay, this is disappointing. So I had to turn on subtitles. Wednesday, I found the workaround to, like, put it all to 2.0 stereo. That somehow fixes it. The most insinuating part of this is that this problem also happens on consoles. So, yeah, there is something going up with that. Um, So, yeah, Memorial Day weekend. I'll probably be spending some time with Chris uh, going and seeing The Avengers 2. Um, Let's see... That's pretty much my highlights there. How about you? Well, I was uh, thinking of maybe getting out to go turkey hunting tomorrow morning, perhaps, depending upon uh, where I think there might be a turkey. Last uh, Saturday, actually, I guess I didn't tell the story, so this is a good time. Last Saturday, I was out hunting, and I actually called in a hen, but uh, hens aren't in season, so that wasn't much good. But it was interesting to call it in, and it got a little bit mad at me for calling and stuff and it came to see where I was at and uh, finally it lost interest and went away but it was fun yeah I've I've been seeing turkeys in smaller groups now 
So this morning I was driving into work, and by the side of the road there were three toms all fanned out, and they had the you know big beards and well not like huge beards, but they had beards. Okay, but anyways they were all fanned out and stuff, and it was it was fun to see them. Yep, yeah, I occasionally see them on the roads, but uh, like I like in the winter, like they're in like flocks of like twenty or thirty, but now I see them maybe five at a time. Yeah, they when they're uh, nesting and stuff, they tend to break up quite a bit this time of the year because the hens go off and they're sitting by themselves all day. And so, yep, they do break down into smaller groups. That seems like that's it. So have a good one. You too.